everyone, and welcome back to PFR Weekly. I'm your host, Devin, and I'm here with my wonderful co-hosts, Jane and Nathan. We are back to talk about more movies, and we are starting with this episode a new thing for us, which is a short arc where we're going to look specifically at one director's movies, and that director is Ryan Coogler. We're going to look at his three films so far, which are Fruitvale Station, Creed, and Black Panther. So today we're starting with Fruitvale Station from 2013, and we're really excited about it because Coogler is one of the most exciting young directors working today, and we all were drawn to talking about his work because they've all been important movies for us and things we've enjoyed or have felt were influential on how we looked at film, at least speaking for myself. Um, so I would just, I guess, open this up before we talk a little bit about who Coogler is and what Fruitvale Station is. Why are both of you drawn to Ryan Coogler? I think I first got interested in him after watching Creed, which I think came out in 2015. And I was interested in that just because I love Michael B. Jordan and I love boxing movies. So I went to see the movie for that, not necessarily for the director, but then just loved that film so much. And then Black Panther came out and obviously that was fantastic. And I think I had gone back and watched Fruitvale Station after watching Creed just because I loved that movie so much. I, I looked up Ryan Coogler to see what else he had done. Um, and also it was interesting to see the director-actor relationship since all of those films have Michael B. Jordan in them. So I was really interested to see how they've worked together across the years and across all of these different types of films and types of characters. So that's what got me interested. I actually don't know much about Ryan Coogler. I had only seen Black Panther before this. I mostly knew the name because Jane talks about Creed like every time we talk. So I, I, you know, I knew that name, but I didn't really have any relationship with him. I had a similar kind of Coogler discovery to Jane in that my dad's from Philly. Rocky is important in the household. And so I was excited for Creed because of that and then went in and was just blown away and we'll talk more about Creed next week, so I'll save all of my Creed stuff for then. But I watched it and went, wow, this guy is talented. Who is he? And at that point, he only had one other movie, which is Fruitvale. So I watched that and was just blown away. And so I've just kind of followed him since then. And so for people who are listening and don't necessarily know who Ryan Coogler is, and also because in doing this little bit of research, I learned stuff about Ryan Coogler I didn't know. Coogler was born in 1986 in Oakland, California, and he grew up there. And then he went to college on football scholarships, which I didn't know. Initially, he played at St. Mary's College of California and then transferred to Sacramento State, where he became really close with Marshawn Lynch, who played for the Seahawks for a long time, and is in season three of Westworld. So it all comes together. But during his time at St. Mary's, he took a creative writing course, discovered that he loved screenwriting, and that led to him going to graduate school at USC. and. From there, he started directing short films, which went on to have many recognitions at festivals, and that built his reputation, which then led to Fruitvale Station, which was his feature directorial debut and premiered in 2013. And Fruitvale Station was a resounding success. It won Audience and Grand Jury Awards after its premiere at Sundance, and then went on to win the Best First Film Award at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival. Both Coogler and the film went on to be honored by the Independent Spirit Awards, Gotham Awards, National Border Review, New York Film Critics Circle Awards. Plus, even though it doesn't tend to happen for these debut indies, Fruitville grossed over $17 million on a budget of 900000 which is pretty incredible. And people took notice. 
just months after Fruitvale premiered, Coogler was offered the directorial gig for Creed. And then, of course, that leads to Black Panther. And now he's working on Black Panther 2 and Space Jam, A New Legacy. So Coogler, already at 34, has had a pretty incredible career and will keep making things, we hope. So was that, that was his first movie, Fruitvale? Yes. And he went straight from that into taking over the Rocky legacy with Creed. Yeah. That's astounding. So Fruitvale is where it all began in terms of mainstream success for Coogler. And he's now gone on to become really an unmitigated Hollywood icon, or if maybe not icon status. For everyone, he is an incredibly influential and discussed filmmaker. But considering how he gets to Black Panther and really just jettisons into the cultural zeitgeist, we can really consider Fruitvale, the movie that really announces him as a director. And so for people who didn't get a chance to watch Fruitvale before listening to this or have missed it somehow, or even if you just want a refresher, uh, the story of Fruitvale Station is pretty straightforward and that it follows Oscar Grant and this day that he lives before being murdered by the police. And it's a real life story. It comes from an incident that happened in 2008 into 2009 because it happens on New Year's Eve. So we span years right there. But it was one that, you know, it has renewed resonance as it continues to constantly, but especially now as we're talking about protests and the deaths. And it was Kugler's first step into a story that happened in his backyard, having grown up in Oakland, and his announcement of he's going to make movies about where he's from and people that he might know. And we can talk about how that continues on through his work. But Fruitvale is a very small human drama in some ways, but the ideas and the scope that it's dealing with really go beyond that small indie sensibility and become something incredibly profound. So one of the things that I found most profound is the fact that it is a true story. There are a lot of sort of these small, beautiful daily life moments that might seem kind of fake or Hollywood or like a fable or sort of sweetened, added in. But the fact that you know that they're real, and I know Kugler made a, a real effort to have this film be as true to life and factual as possible. The fact that you know this is real and a real person, I think just makes it all the more profound. It doesn't seem, you know, fake and Hollywood. I think it feels really impactful when you know that it's a true story. I think that this in a way is, is kind of the perfect film to have watched right after talking about The Watermelon Woman last week. And I think that there are a couple thematic similarities, at least that, that we can talk about. And last week, we talked a little bit about uh, the moment in The Watermelon Woman where she has an encounter with the police and how that moment doesn't end up going terribly. Um, and we talked a little bit about how that's kind of, it's, it's just a minor moment in her life, part of something greater. So this film now, we kind of get that, get that moment played out in what could have happened. Um, and so I think that, that that's just kind of a parallel to something we talked about last week, as well as the fact that with this film, you know, we kind of get to the end and then there's this moment that this is a real thing. I think I subconsciously made some of that connection, but didn't think so explicitly between this and Watermelon Woman. But just thinking about how, you know, every movie we've talked about so far in this sequence, we have somehow gotten back to the, well, how does it use real life events to anchor it? All right, obviously talking with Defy Bloods or Mudbound, using World War II as this backdrop, right? Reality has flowed so much through everything we've talked about. And to reach the Watermelon Woman, just as you're saying that, you know, reality that's been falsified, this is the movie that is inescapable in its reality. 
and even the, from the way it starts, just to have the video, it's not a movie that is in any way interested in building the suspense of what's going to happen to him. It makes watching it, it's a word that I think it's thrown around, but I think it's the only way I can describe the first experience watching this. It is a harrowing thing to watch as you get so invested and engrossed in this man and the life around him and the people around him, but you know what's going to happen. You know, rewatching it for this podcast, thinking like, oh man, maybe it won't happen this time. And I love what you're saying about it's just sort of this unstoppable, you're hoping it won't happen this time. And I had already seen it before and I had the same experience watching it again. And there are so many moments where it seems like they won't go or Oscar's like, I don't really feel like going out tonight or he's going to drive. And then his mom suggests taking the train and you're watching it like, no, don't, you know, cause you know what's coming, but it's just inevitable. And Kugler makes that clear right off the bat. So there's no questioning or tension, although there still is that sort of sense of suspense and tension just because you, you know what's going to happen. You have to watch it unfold. This is my first time watching Fruitvale Station, and maybe I was a little dumb kind of going into it, but, you know, seeing the initial scene, I was kind of looking at 2009, and then we back up and we get these scenes from 2008 and 2007, and then there was kind of a moment when I, for, for a bunch of it, when I was thinking, okay, like, I don't actually know who, who gets shot. And so I like I was kind of holding my breath thinking, okay, maybe this is this is the film where it doesn't happen. Maybe this is the film where, you know, there is a happy ending or something. And then there was just at some moment, I think it was maybe when when they decide to go into San Francisco that I kind of like felt this just dread from that point on. Very similar, I think, to my experience watching Mudbound and kind of the the dread that surrounds the Ronzel. Mm. Uh, kind of relationship there and what, what ends up happening to him where it's kind of like, okay, I, I know what's coming. I don't know. It was like a punch that I got. Yeah. It, to me, feels like the purest expression of capital T tragedy that, I don't know, I don't want to say I've ever watched <laughs> because that's too grand and I haven't reflected on that as much, but it, when I think of it, tragedy as a concept in film, it comes up so much because you have Grant as a figure who we see that he has this past he struggled with, but he's at this moment of clarity where he is pushing through so hard to escape that, to focus on his relationship with his girlfriend, Safina, and his daughter, Tatiana, and just have this focus on these are the good things and I'm going to make it work. And that idea of that recognition of fallibility that a tragic figure must have, he fully understands that. And he is trying so hard to be, even though it sounds cliche, the best version of who he can be, because that's what we're seeing reaffirmed so much is that he has so much love in him and so much grace that to see that become actualized and then see it cut away, see his life ended is just devastating and then to know that it really happened and that Kugler has taken so much time and so much pain to make it as true to that day as possible there is no escape from the fact that this tragedy is real and I think it hits differently because this isn't some biopic that moves through so many moments and it's watered down over the course of history and we're changing this it's Kugler really claustrophobically putting us in there and so you are in the moment you are following everything he goes through and so those interactions, like he is at the grocery store with Katie and she's asking about the fish and then she's there and that feels like such a Hollywood thing, but that happened and it's documented and he's found that and it is rendered and captured in such 
a beautiful day. Yeah, we get to the end and it's still just destructive. Going back to what we were saying earlier about the watermelon woman, it does remind you that it's just one man who got this wonderful film made about him. And there are so many others who have been killed by police who aren't going to get these beautiful films made or documentaries made. And I was thinking about that watching um, the end credits where they were talking about how the officer who killed Oscar was arrested and charged with murder. And he was actually sent to prison for two years. He was released after 11 months, but there have been so many officers who have not even been charged or fired or sent to prison at all. And so it seems like it's sort of emphasizing in a weird way what we were saying about the watermelon woman, that these stories aren't told. And this seems like the one bright spot of this amazing, beautiful story that was told, but it's just one and everybody else has kind of been forgotten or lumped together. I mean, on a not not quite personal note, but um, recently I've I've been to a couple of vigils in in Portland for people who have who have been murdered by the police, including a a young man uh, by the name of Jason Washington who was killed by on campus security at Portland State University. I you know I, I went to a couple of events kind of celebrating his life. Um, at which his his wife and his uh, and his daughter spoke about kind of his last day and everything that kind of led up to it. All all of these different really kind of very touching moments. And I and so watching watching Fruitvale Station, I was kind of reminded of that that story and and just the fact that there are so many of these stories out there. And in many ways, their stories are very different. In many ways, they they end the same. Um, again, it was it was kind of a some sort of an altercation that ended when a police officer showed up and seeing a black man decided to fire and in, in this case, I think something like thirteen times or something. So I think that this this film really hit home for me just in the sense that i I feel like I've heard this story, this real story kind of played out so many times recently in in the media and even in our in my hometown. Yeah, I agree, and I also just love this story because of the humanity that it gives Oscar, which I think is a word that Kugler himself used. And I've been reading about the movie. He was saying he didn't want to make Oscar seem like a saint because he wasn't. And he didn't want to make him seem like he was someone who had deserved what's coming to him, which people had also said when this happened. And he just wanted to make him seem like a human, which he was, and talk about his day and his relationships with his family, fights that he had or mistakes that he made, but also the good things that he did and just kind of that whole messy thing, which is, you know, the true representation of a person. And so I love that he, I mean, he's saying bigger things without really explicitly making it too broad. He's made it very specific and human and focusing on this one guy. And I think that's really effective. I would connect to that too in something I was thinking about is so much of the discourse around the individuals who are murdered by the police is we seem to have this tendency, I use the capital W, we, royal we, as a culture, want to look for ways to think about, oh, well, they were a good person and that's why it's sad that they were killed. And this reality of regardless of who they were, nobody should have been murdered by the police. We can find a different way of empathizing maybe if we think, oh, they were this innocent young kid, and that becomes a different level of how I think about it. At the same time, the discourse to say, oh, they were a quote unquote, good black person, for me gets back to this idea that Kugler is talking about. And what you're bringing in, Jane, is that Oscar Grant was a human in all of his flaws and all of his beautiful moments of humanity. He made incredible mistakes. And that does not mean that any one of those mistakes justifies him being killed. 
And I think that this movie seems to be in so many ways a corrective to that narrative to say you spend a day with any person and you are going to recognize their humanity on a new level, regardless of what they are dealing with. Because if you see them brushing their teeth with their child, as we see, if you see them driving in the car, listening to music that they like, they become a person. And I think that it's a very necessary corrective to this national and sometimes international discourse. And if I may, I feel like one of the central things that makes this movie so effective in thinking about humanity is I feel the way that Michael B. Jordan just brings Oscar Grant to such vibrant life. I mean, his performance, I think Michael B. Jordan is always incredible. I could do a whole different tangent and rant about how Michael B. Jordan is the most undervalued leading man in Hollywood. Um, we will. Just, we would just wait for Creed. It's coming. <laughs> It'll come. <laughs> That's really the subtext of this three episode arc is talking about Michael B. Jordan. But I think that this performance, just the nuance, the power, I, <laughs> there is so much to say about it. I don't even know where to start. Well, I will start because my favorite scene, well, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Oscar is in prison and his mother comes to visit him, who's played by Octavia Spencer. And he has this amazing shift where he's sitting and talking to his mom and he seems like kind of a mama's boy. And he's like, oh, hey mom. And they're talking about his daughter. And then this other prisoner walks by and insults his mother. And Michael B. Jordan just flips so quickly and his face hardens and his eyes shift and he stands up and he gets into this yelling match with this other prisoner. And his mom is just looking at him like, calm down, calm down, like looking at him like, Oscar, what are you doing? And he's looking past her and this other prisoner and then shifts to look back at her and kind of settles down a little bit more. But it's just this complex person of he's so in love with his mother and such a sweet person and can so quickly also become so intense and then sort of has this tough interaction with his mother and then immediately sort of regrets it. And it's just such a complex, messy scene, but he does it so well and it's so precise. And you can see a lot, I think, just in his face because he doesn't say a whole lot of words, but I, I just love it. I think it's amazing. I feel like one of the things you get at in that is the complete control he has over emotions and also how he has an incredibly expressive face, which, you know, something you can say about a lot of actors, but there's some way that he takes the approach. It always, I was for some reason think of Anthony Hopkins as another person who I think has this incredible facial control. And Michael B. Jordan for me is in that same realm of just the lip movement, the nostril flare, the eye. It just, he has such a control of it. And so what that leads to for me, I think, is that so many of these moments in this movie, whether it's him driving in the car, it's him picking out the card after his sister has asked him to buy one. There are all of these quiet moments. And I feel like one of the hardest things to do for an actor is, you know, if somebody's just like, you know, act normal. It's not a crazy scene. It's just, you know, it's a normal thing. And it so often smacks as fake. It just feels like, oh, this is so staged. And I think that what Michael B. Jordan can do with that emotional control is he modulates perfectly into, okay, we've seen him talk to this person. We know the background joke. We understand what he's thinking. And for me, one of the most humorous scenes in the movie, because there are some really funny moments here as well, which I think is one of the brilliant parts of his performance is that even in this stress, when we're thinking, oh, this is going to be such a tragedy, he can still make us laugh is when he's talking on the phone to his mother and she's, bothering him about his headset 
to put in the Bluetooth headset and he's looking around and he just sticks his cell phone under his hat. And the way that he's looking around, I think of all the times I've been in the car and looking for something and trying to drive and you're looking, he just captures the essence of that. And there are so many other big capital A acting moments in this movie to talk about, but those quiet moments that really make a movie work because something like this, it's a day in the life sort of situation. Those moments need to connect it all. You can't just have the big showy acting moments because there aren't that many, but the groundwork that gets laid for those big moments happen in the quiet. And he just, he's unreal. Yeah, I love all those little moments. And one of my other favorites is the one where he goes to pick up his daughter from preschool and then they're yes. racing to the car, <laughs> which to be fair is played. It's all in slow-mo. They know what they're doing, but it's such a good, he's just so free and having fun. And he's just like hops on top of the car and it's so joyous and his daughter's running with him. And it just is like, you know, every dad racing their daughter and cheating to get there. And <laughs> it's just so perfect. I think one of the other ones on a, on a slightly different note, uh, another kind of tragic moment that I think he just does so brilliantly is when he finds the dog. So he's at a, he's at a um, gas station and a stray dog comes up to him. He's kind of playing with the dog for a moment. And then somebody, he, tur- he turns away and somebody hits the dog. And there's this, this moment, I mean, of him, him kind of like going over, picking up the dog, trying to get it, trying to see if it's okay, trying, you know, telling it like, you know, stay with me. Just, it's, it's heartbreaking, but he, you, you forget that he's acting. I mean, of course he's acting, but he, you, you entirely forget that this isn't a, an immediate kind of response. I don't know. It just, yeah, maybe it humanizes him, but it also kind of just adds up to this kind of emotional core of the film that is just so heartbreaking. I love how you say emotional core, Nathan, because I think that the way I think about this movie is that Michael B. Jordan is the emotional core of the movie because he is the focus. But as I think in any great film, that emotional core is elevated by what's happening around it. And I think in this regard, the supporting cast, and I I even bat an eye at the word supporting because I think that I've used it, but relegate everyone else in this movie to just quote unquote supporting I think undercuts what's happening because it's a it's such a short movie it's a lean 90 minutes and every scene is so important to that whole that we're talking about and so every performance no matter how small in this movie has to be note perfect to get the full weight of what you're experiencing. And I don't think there's a wrong note. And like, there are children actors in this movie and that very rarely works out well when you're trying to have a heavy emotional drama in a couple scenes with a kid. And the actress plays Tatiana is great. And then everyone else wrong. So many moments could have gone if somebody wasn't on the same level as him or if he couldn't find chemistry. I only bring it back to him because he is this core. And so he is, it is his story. So it has to work for him more than anything. And everyone's right. I mean, to think of the scenes we've talked about, right? Octavia Spencer, who is just a queen in every way, shape and form, she delivers in every moment, whether that's in the prison scene you talked about, Jane, where she has this sweetness and then this harsh, I'm not coming to see you in here again. You see that pain. You see all of these unspoken years of what's happened between them. And I I think you could say that about every supporting performance. Yeah, I agree. And I think the supporting cast, as we're calling them, are especially important here because it's 
Kugler's way of, of building up how important Oscar was to all of these people and that there were people who loved him and cared about him. And I love the way that whenever he sends a text, he kind of scrolls through a bunch of contacts in his phone, which seems funny because it's obviously an old phone, but also it's just a way of symbolizing, look at all these people he knows and cares about and talks to and who love him. And so I think you really need to have that strong supporting cast there to, to build him up and uh, make this story real. And one of my favorite performances is Sofina, who's played by Melanie Diaz. And I think my favorite scene of hers is right after Oscar is shot, which is such an interesting, such a difficult timeline to do because we know that he's shot and we know that he dies. We know what happened to Oscar Grant. And so you have to be really careful about how you're going to do that last, whatever it is, 15 minutes of the movie. What do you do with that time? How do you structure it? And I just love that scene because she's waiting downstairs trying to figure out what has happened and she is just frantic. And it's just that utter loss and confusion and no one has any information and she doesn't know who to call or what to do. No one's telling her anything. She can't get upstairs and she's just wild-eyed and crying and frantic and doesn't know what to do. And she just so perfectly embodies that like complete uncertainty. She doesn't know what's going on and it's just utter chaos and she's really the main character that we get that through because upstairs we know what's happened and she's just downstairs waiting for him alone. I was incredibly taken by her performance as well and I I think from that first moment when we see her and Michael B. Jordan in the bedroom and we just get this establishment like they're together but it's tense and the kind of push and pull that happens between them where he's always trying to kind of get through and cuddle up and be like, come on, I'm here for you. And she's just not buying the bullshit as she sees it. Um, And I think that we see through her performance, like there have been years and years of her dealing with him going to prison and her raising Tatiana. And you get this history sold in those little moments. And so that for me, the moment when they're getting ready to go to the birthday party and he comes in and she's changing and they're talking and you see that range of her going from that kind of a little more removed to coming to him. Uh, she says, you know, I could slap you right now, but she says it with such love on her face that you see this as such a complicated relationship they have, but they care so much about each other. And because you know that, it is that franticness at the end that just is another layer of debilitating because in a much lesser movie, right, the kind of girlfriend love interest character is just barely sketched to be there. You know, I think we can we can name a laundry list of movies that do that. And Kugler, in writing this, takes such pains to create the people around Grant. Yeah, and I could just go on and on about the performances, but it just <laughs> that such that trio of Diaz, Spencer, and Kugler just run away with the movie in so many ways. I think maybe to tie this back into another film that we talked about, uh, the f- the first film we did for the series was Sorry to Bother You, which I think that again there there are a few thematic ties there as well. For one, the, the setting, Oakland, and also kind of these establishing shots of, of them driving around, shots of the bay, shots of Bart going by. I think that in some ways, Safina kind of has has a similar role as Tessa Thompson's character in Sorry to Bother You. And I think that they both kind of equally sell it as these like full-fledged characters who have their own lives independent of the the, the kind of male leads and do so much with these kind of moments of intimacy, you know, in which they reveal kind of not only years of kind of them struggling together, trying to get by in a society that is that is actively trying to oppress them, 
but that they're just, you know, that they're real people, that they have all of these emotions making up kind of what every relationship is, which is, you know, it's never, it's never black or white. It's never kind of one emotion at any one time, but they just, I don't know, both of them just do such a fabulous job as these, I don't know, again, supporting characters doesn't quite feel right because they're so central. The film just wouldn't work without them. I think you feel that especially with how much time we get in the waiting room of the hospital as they're trying to save Oscar's life. And there's so many people in that waiting room and they just keep crowding in and there's so many shots and there's this big circle and everybody's praying for him. And obviously it's this huge loss to lose Oscar as our, our protagonist, but also we have so many other strong characters there and we see how supported and how loved he is. And there's sort of this web or, or network supporting him. And maybe that's a way to enter into Kugler's role in all of this. Because if you think about Kugler in this role of kind of orchestrating everything, especially as writer and director, he has so much control over this story. And I think as a director, even though this is his first feature film, he is a stylist in so many ways. There are these flourishes that I think we see start here that evolve throughout Creed and Black Panther and it is very clear that like this is something he does and I'm sure we can get to that in a second but when somebody as a writer director has so much control to know how to structure a story from beginning to end especially when you're working on the constraint of this is a day how much of him driving do we show how much of this and obviously that's working with an editor but to have the instincts to know okay this is how much time we need to spend with this person and this is what we need to see Oscar doing. He crafts this narrative that serves everyone in the story with such equity in how we get to know them. Because again, we're spending the most time with Oscar because he is the protagonist. But I don't know, just the knowledge as a first-time director to create such a spread strikes me as just breathtaking to think that he could manage this as a young director who's never done it before and still have these moments. I mean, when I think of him as a style, right, well, obviously we'll talk about his creed, but he really loves long takes. They keep coming back. And we don't have those same kind of tracking shots here, but he really uses a number of very relaxed, the camera just sits in the car with Michael B. Jordan as he's driving, or it sits in a close-up or a medium shot as people are talking. He, though, is not yet moving the camera in any sort of Scorsese, Copacabana sort of way as he does later on, he has this tendency towards these long shots that are just peaceful here. And it strikes me that it's such a thoughtful and compassionate way to work with actors and the trust you have to have to say, I'm just going to put the camera here and I'm going to trust you to sell it. And there are other moments where he gets really showy with the camera, but there are far fewer here than I think in anything else he does. And it's, I think the scope of the movie lends itself towards that. So what did the two of you think about Kugler as his, I don't know, as this directorial role and style? Because there's so much to say about him, but I'm curious what you felt most drawn to. Yeah, I think I agree with what you've said. I think he just appreciates kind of what he has. I mean, when you're talking about how much weight he gives to each person, I mean, part of that he has, because it's just what Oscar did that day and who he saw, but there is also a way of threading it together and how you stitch all of that together that I think he does really beautifully. And also just, as you said, trusting his actors. It's, it's not a documentary. It's kind of a documentary though, right? So if you've got the great actors and you've got the true story, you have got a lot of great equipment 
there and you have to just be able to sort of meld it all together and wrap it up in a really effective way, which I think he does really well. A lot of that is, as you said, just sort of the instincts for how the story is building and how it's progressing and getting us to know Oscar and know what he's like, getting to know the people around him. We're, as we've said, sort of learning about this man and his humanity and what his life was like, knowing that he's going to be killed in 90 minutes time. So we've got a set period of time in which we have to become familiar with his life. So I think that's really the most amazing thing is he does it in such a short period of time. It could have been a lot longer of a film. I would have watched many more minutes of these actors. There could have been many more scenes of them all together. And 90 minutes is not that long, but he manages to get it all done. I mean, on on that note, I think you both know that I love short films and short books everything like i like the shorter the better for me in a way so i think that the brevity of it really is what made this film for me um the same with the watermelon woman where it's the vignette like structure of of both films kind of to to me really kind of sells it because you get these kind of very personal glimpses in moments and i and i feel like that's the way that that memory actually works i mean we don't remember an entire day we remember kind of bits and pieces we remember kind of vignettes of somebody's of conversations with somebody of moments of, you know, we'll remember weird things like driving around or snatches of a conversation that we had or moments where he's looking out at the bay, these kind of things, rather than, you know, all the details of an event. And I think that there's something really kind of touching about that. And again, I know I keep comparing this with, uh, with other films, but like, like the watermelon woman or another film that I was thinking of was, uh, uh, was some of the, like the early digital films, like Kirastami's 10, which kind of has these vignettes again, and and I was just thinking about the way that this, you know, this is kind of made possible by the medium in a way, having the, the digital cameras, having kind of handheld stuff that, that really kind of gives us this this more personal, more intimate look at uh, what somebody's life is is really like, maybe. And so I thought that stylistically that was was kind of a masterstroke of, of kind of, you know, just taking this to the next level of, of immediacy. So I, I really love that aspect. Growing from that, Nathan, I think that something Kugler does in framing so many of these scenes, I just think in the way that he presents shots to place Grant in a very specific space in every moment. Like I think of when he's walking out to look over the ocean, right? You've mentioned that one. It We get the ocean and then Grant walks into the frame and it has this sense of Grant being dwarfed by this gigantic space, right? As we tend to use the ocean and that's not in some ways a novel shot to use, but he stages it in a way that feels so evocative that I'm not sitting there thinking like, oh, well, okay, somebody else did this. I'm thinking this moment feels emotionally right for where this man is and the kind of filmmaking we've set up. And I think too, going back to that scene uh, where the stray dog dies, we are at the gas station following Grant around and we're getting these shots that are close to him or framing him and we don't actually see the car hit the dog. And when he goes to the dog, we're following him in that handheld. It is this very nimble camera work that is going all over the place and following the character and following the action, but is not doing so in a way that distracts from what's happening. I think it's a very smart choice to give it this very feel of we're in the moment with him, which I think becomes even more gutting when we get to the BART station and when we get to Fruitvale at the end, because he's shown us the camera footage at the beginning that when he morphs from his specific style into mimicking what we've already seen from the camera phone and kind of bringing those two images together 
It reminded me of when you were talking, Nathan, about Spike Lee staging Malcolm X moments. In the movie, right, I think it's the same. Kugler is recreating the video through his lens. And the, if we think of the whole movie as him recreating Grant and Grant's last day through his lens, it has this really consistent mode of we are making a film and we are making an artistic rendering of this, but I'm going to get as close as possible to making you feel like you are watching the day happen. And I'm going to have my cinematic flourishes, but nothing that's going to take you out of it. I already said this, I know, but just to come back to it because it's so incredible. It's, it's the first movie this guy's directing. How? It's incredible. This film for me was, was just such an emotional experience. I think I've literally cried during two films before in like in my entire life. But I, I like at the end I was tearing up and I part part of that might just be that I'm extra prone to to emotional kind of mood swings and stuff lately, but just something about the way that Kugler kind of sets everything up and then you get these kind of final moments, especially with his his mom in there trying to go and wanting to give him a hug and they won't let her go in which kind of parallels the earlier scene where he's trying to give her a hug in the jail holding cell and like she's turned away from him and you just get this kind of like i don't know just sense of kind of emotionality in in her in her performance there you you have to imagine what kind of like guilt that she's going through at that point of feeling like and and she says like i was the one who told him not to drive and she's kind of putting that all on herself at that moment it's just like that is such like I can't even imagine what she's going through. Another thing that I love that Kugler does is he has his camera close up on Oscar's face when he's shot, which I think is so interesting because you just see the basically mainly shock on his face and he immediately exclaims, you shot me! Like he's kind of just can't believe it because obviously he hasn't seen the footage. He doesn't know going into this movie that he's going to die and that footage does not exist and I just love that we get that very up close, intimate moment. And something else that I, I think makes it more heartbreaking is so they shot that scene actually in Fruitvale Station. There's still a bullet hole there apparently in the ground from where he was lying and that's where they filmed it. So Michael B. Jordan has to lay down on the ground on this spot where Oscar Grant was shot and pretend to be shot for this film, which I think is um, a really heavy and emotional thing to do. And I, I understand why you cried watching it because it's really just hits you. I think he's made it very impactful and he's built it up well. It is so real. Um, and, it, and it feels at, at points like a documentary, especially with those kind of handheld moments at the end where we're looking, you know, from the perspective of, I think, Katie kind of on the, on, on Bart, kind of like looking at, uh, where he is and I mean I I don't, I don't know that's just such like I mean I've I've literally been at that station not that long ago and I don't remember it in particular but it's like I I remember walking through these stations and kind of now I'm just like you know what would it be like to go back and kind of and be there or you know what what would it be like to be one of the other people in this in this story who have to take Bart like you know every day or something or you know, th this is like still a real place for them. And they will always associate it with his, his murder there. And just talking about the people on the train, one of the things that struck me this time that I hadn't 
really thought about last time was just the sense of powerlessness of everyone watching. They're all filming it. But I was just thinking, what do you do in that situation? Like call the police. You the police are already, who's going to help you in this situation. And everyone's kind of trying to intervene, not trying to intervene, yelling, filming it. But what do you do? And everyone's just sort of screaming and Katie's trying to do something. I'm not quite sure what she's trying to do. And everyone's kind of trying to do something. I mean, bearing witness is something recording it is something, but there's just this sense that nobody can really do anything. Who's going to help the people who are supposed to help are already there and shooting people. And they're, they're literally yelling serve and protect at these, these police officers there. You know, it's not my story to tell, but again, with this, the, this vigil that I went to for Jason Washington and I've, I've been to several other events recently where, where people told stories about loved ones who, who were murdered at the hands of police. And one story that kind of just stuck with me was a woman who said, you know, nobody, nobody prepares you for this because who are you supposed to turn to when somebody that you that you love has been murdered by the police. If, if it's anybody else, you know, you can seek justice in this moment and you can, and you can point fingers and you can say, this is who did it. And the police will come and then kind of try to figure things out for you. When it is a police officer, that element of kind of resolution is, is just stripped away from you entirely. And the police do everything that they can to make it impossible for you to actually grieve this and get over it. And that just like that, I don't know, the woman that, that, that spoke those words kind of just like, I don't know, her voice is still in my head and was just kind of in my head throughout the film. And I was like, this is just such a, just the fact that this is a real story and that it's just one of so many real stories is just heartbreaking. I feel like when you walk into a movie and it's a real life event, the vast majority of movies that are made about real life events have happened decades before they're released. We're used to this narrative of there was this thing that happened, it was an injustice, and then this story led to this reform or led to this law or led to such and such, right? There is this tendency for filmmakers to latch on to these historical moments that can then talk about the time today. But if we look at Fruitvale Station, it's a moment that's happened in 2008, 2009. The movie's made in 2013. This is our history, but it's not like it's a textbook history. It is something that is still unraveling and is still happening and right now is we are in the midst of i mean just watching the scene unfold and you see the police officer's knee go down on his neck and i mean it's a moment that's chilling the first time you watch it but watching it now thinking about george floyd it, it becomes resonant in a way that i couldn't have imagined and i didn't even notice i didn't even notice that the first time i watched it and now that's immediately first time it yeah. happened first shot yeah that was that was the first thing i wrote down and it Uh, just it's there is no title card that can come after this movie and say and oscar grant's death led to the passing of this law and this isn't a history that can be padded by decades of well this is what people have done we are a part of now what is being done in the continued injustice of moments that happen like this because of all of these stories that don't get told all the stories that we hear but there are so many issues that can be and need to be taken care of i mean you talk about not being able to turn to someone we're talking now about qualified immunity and we're talking about these issues that play through this and it's not a history that we can be removed from. It's a history that is as urgent as it's ever been. And to watch this movie is to come face to face with how a country failed 
to protect this man and that his killer got off with 11 months on an involuntary manslaughter charge after shooting him in the back with a gun. I mean, he was charged for second degree murder and got off with involuntary manslaughter. And if that's the justice system that is trying to protect people, we have to turn to this and say, this is not good enough. And while we, I'm so grateful for somebody like Ryan Coogler who can make a film like this and bring this to the forefront, that needs to be a galvanizing push to say, okay, the movie has been made. Let's not let this story happen again. I mean, I think that um, as, as with all of these films, we have to kind of, you know, take a step back and, and think about like, what is our role in this and kind of what do we as three white film critics need to take away from this? And I think the thing that, that like with The Watermelon Woman, again, kind of stuck out to me was just that this is, you know, these are, these are films that were made years ago and that are telling the stories that, that I think a lot of white people are just coming to terms with now. And it's like kind of doing this, you know, almost archaeological dig and kind of finding like every year there's a film made in which something like this happens. Dozens of films every year have moments of police violence or jokes about police violence or somebody almost getting into a situation like that. And so I think that, you know, this is a real, uh, a really interesting moment for all of us to kind of say, now a lot of people are finally waking up to this fact. And so now when we go back and watch these films, we kind of watch them through a lens that was always there, but that we never kind of explicitly talked about. And, and I think that that's what's kind of important for us maybe in, in this moment is, is to kind of say like, we can't continue to ignore those moments in films when Black filmmakers are showing us in every film that these kind of moments of racism are still around. That was part one of our ongoing three-part series about Ryan Coogler's current directorial filmography. Coming in chronological order, next week we'll be discussing Kugler's sophomore effort, 2015's Creed. The movie represents a major shift in terms of budget and production size, so the three of us will consider the film on its own merits, as well as what it represents for Kugler's continued directorial development. Plus, the movie happens to be on two of our favorite film shortlists, and you can take your guesses as to who that applies to. As always, make sure to let us know if you agree or disagree with our thoughts by sending a message or a comment. Either way, make sure to follow us on Instagram at Portland underscore film underscore review, Facebook at Portland Film Review, and rate and review us wherever you're listening to this show. Plus, if you want to suggest a movie or get in touch about anything to do with PFR, shoot us an email at pfrweekly at gmail.com. Today's episode was edited by Nathan Maudlin and yours truly, Devin McGrath-Conwell, and produced by Jane Vaughn, Nathan Maudlin, and myself. Thanks for listening, and happy watching. (music) 